true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I actually want to start this morning by acknowledging a couple of people in our parish. I'll start by picking on Christine Martin, who took the time to decorate the parish hall for Pentecost with the flags of the 200 countries of the world, the icons of the 12 apostles, and let's not forget the balloons that represent the tongues of fire. Thank you, Christine. An amazing job. Let me also pick on Connie Alexander, who will hate me for doing this, but she procured the red velvet cake for our celebration after the service. Thank you, Connie Alexander. What a gift you both are. And how awesome all of you are as we've come together as a church, as a congregation. After all, today is the Feast of Pentecost, the birthday of the church when Christ himself established it 2,000 years ago. As it happens, the first public worship service of our beloved parish family, Christ the Redeemer, took place 16 years ago. I always like to show a few pictures just to remind us of how we began and show us how far we've come. Some of our beloved members, Connie, Anne, Smiths, the legacy of Rad's hat. Anne, where are you? Wearing Rad's hat today. How wonderful. Some guy trying to play a guitar and others maybe or maybe not paying attention. A bunch of kids who've all grown up now, one of whom in the blue dress is married and expecting her first child, my daughter Sarah. I think everybody knows that by now. And maybe the first ever Anglican tent revival. I, I don't, don't quote me on that. Surely it was the first one in Crowley, Texas, or at least the first one on Pentecost in Crowley, Texas in 2008. How about that? But when I say we, of course, we are more than just those of us in this parish family. We are part of the church throughout time and throughout space. It's more than just interesting to note that Christianity is the largest religion in the world, it's important to talk about. With over 2 billion Christians, Christianity makes up one-third of the world's population. And I think we can all agree that this is a remarkable and a very good statistic. For it demonstrates the vibrancy and the resiliency and the perseverance of the Christian faith throughout the world. But what is perhaps more remarkable is to consider how Christianity got to where it is today and what that means for us here at Christ the Redeemer. You see, Pentecost didn't actually begin as a Christian feast. In fact, it was one of three Jewish festivals that drew Israelites together from all around the Mediterranean rim. Think of the pilgrimage. Think of the journeys that they made. Every year, families would gather the first fruits of their wheat. They would journey to Jerusalem to present it to God as the first fruits of their offerings. So let's now travel back in time, put ourselves at that Pentecost 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ, as literally throngs of Israelites began their ascent up the Temple Mount with their offerings in hand, 
And the priests began to prepare not only their usual offerings, but a special grain offering, a cereal offering at Pentecost. Gentlemen, prepare yourselves. Because all of the Jewish men who were in attendance would then be invited to do an altar dance. I don't see anybody getting up. In the courts of the temple. And they would sing the Hallel. These joyous phrases from Psalms 113 to 118. Okay, I won't ask you to dance, but I'll at least read some of them aloud. From Psalm 113, praise the Lord, O you servants of the Lord. He is high above the nations and his glory above the heavens. From Psalm 115, why should the nations say where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And how about this one from Psalm 117, a fitting psalm for Pentecost. This is Psalm 117 in its entirety. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So meanwhile, as all of this was going on, somewhere to the southwest of the temple... A very small band of Christians, about 120 in all, we are told. They had been praying in this upper room for nine or so days, waiting patiently for the Holy Spirit to come, just as Jesus had promised he would. Now again, place yourselves in the context of this particular Feast of Pentecost. Because to everyone... In the outside world, what these Christians were doing seemed completely irrelevant. What impact could 120 people praying in a room possibly have on, let's say, Europe or Asia or North America or South America? I'll include Australia just for fun. To the Romans and the Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem on that day... The presence of these 120 praying in this upper room was no more than the lingering effect of an insignificant irritant. To them, Christ had been killed. 120 peasants praying to a dead man could hardly matter now. But then suddenly, as the scriptures say, something happened. And it didn't just change them. It began to change Jerusalem. And then it changed Judea. And then it changed Samaria. And soon it changed everyone, even to the ends of the earth. And it's still changing people today. And because words cannot adequately describe what happened, I'll invite us to use our imagination. We're told that a sound like a mighty rushing wind suddenly came down from heaven into the room and tongues of fire descended upon these 120 disciples who were gathered there. And this is the incredible part. 
somehow it was so powerful that it completely disrupted the Jewish feast of Pentecost and caught the attention of those who were celebrating. It actually caused them to stop what they were doing. They actually abandoned their own Jewish festival. The scriptures say they came together in bewilderment and then they heard these disciples speaking in their own languages. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and so on. Each one heard them proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own native tongue. Now, the scriptures don't tell us exactly what they said. That is, we don't exactly know what mighty works of God they were talking about. But what the scripture does show us is this. The scripture shows us the effects. And that's what I want to focus on now. The effects of the people of God praising God. There are three And they have something powerful to say to us today, to those of us who stand on their shoulders and sit in this room 2,000 years later all the way in southwest Fort Worth. The first effect is this, unification. Through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and by this supernatural gift that God gave the disciples to instantaneously and miraculously speak in other languages, people from different tongues and tribes and nations were beginning to be united by the word of God. The point is this. You know this. You live this. You feel this every day of your lives. We are divided and enslaved by sin. We are in constant conflict with one another in this world. But when the people of God start praising God for who he is and what he has done, others will come together and they will listen and Jesus will begin to tear down these dividing walls of hostility. And the sin that divides us and the death that destroys us is overthrown by the Jesus who loves us and forgives us and frees us from the shackles of sin and the stronghold of death. Now, however right and good and powerful as that is, it is the goal after all, we Christians must also be very aware because there is a second effect. You know this. When the people of God start praising God, it also causes division. The scriptures say that some mocked the disciples. They even said they must be drunk on new wine. This, my friends, is the critical moment. This is the crucible. When conflict comes up, what will I do? What will we do? Will I stand up or will I stand down? And when, when you and I today, in our time, in our place, find ourselves in that situation, in that circumstance, I want us to think of Peter. I want you to think about the Apostle Peter. Just two months prior to this very feast of Pentecost, Peter had denied that he ever knew Jesus three times. And yes, after the resurrection, Jesus had forgiven Peter three times, but what about now? For Jesus had ascended 
And now Peter is standing before the very people who killed Christ and they were staring him straight in the eye. How easy would it have been in that moment for Peter to start reasoning with himself? Maybe I'll just wait for the mockers to go away. We might say it this way today. I'll just keep them in my thoughts and prayers and and hope that God will do something. And yes, we should do that. And yes, God is capable. But here's my point. Would God actually want me to confront them, to challenge them, to push back? On them? When we find ourselves in that moment and we find ourselves thinking those things, when everything inside of us wants to reason with ourselves, to rationalize and to run away, that's exactly when we should ask ourselves what did Peter do? Did Peter step down or did Peter stand up? Standing in front of the whole crowd, Peter spoke with clarity and Peter spoke with conviction. He told the people exactly what was happening. He interpreted the praises of the people, both the seekers and the scoffers. Telling them how the promised Holy Spirit had been prophesied in the Old Testament and how he is available to anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Because here's the point. Here's the point. How do you know? How do you know that the scoffer isn't just as interested as the seeker? Yes, standing up for Jesus may be uncomfortable. It may be difficult. One day we might find it deadly. But what about this? What if standing up for Jesus causes the scoffer to repent of his sin and be saved? What if the very person who is mocking you and me is simply testing our mettle to make sure that we would stand by our convictions all the way to the end? Because maybe, just maybe, that's the very thing he needs to see in you and in me in order to believe it for himself. And as Peter preached the gospel with clarity and conviction on that day to the seekers and the scoffers alike, the scripture says the people were cut to the heart by Peter's words. And so they asked him, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off and for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Think about it this way. Isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that some of the scoffers who were there on that day got saved and got baptized? And became saints. Isn't it possible? This leads me to the third and final effect of the power of praise. And that is multiplication. Multiplication. Literally in the blink of an eye. The church grew from 120 to. If I got the math right. 3,120. Because the scriptures say. Those who received Peter's word on that day. And were baptized. Were about 3,000 souls. But get this. Don't stop there. 
Keep reading the book of Acts because as you do, what you'll find pretty soon is that 5,000 more souls were soon added. And as one author says, I love this. He says, what began as a ragtag band of very small disciples, so small in membership that it was hardly worth noticing, nevertheless formed the nucleus of the most powerful movement ever to develop in human history. I love that. I love that. This, my friends, is the power of the people of God praising God. And it is the plan and the pattern for the church throughout time and space. And guess what? This is exactly what God has in mind for this very congregation. When the people of God here start praising God, there is a unifying effect. There will be some who are inclined to want to hear what you say. A hunger will be stirred in them. They will gather around you and they will want to hear more. At the same time, when the people of God start praising God, make no mistake and be prepared. It will cause division. What did God do in creation? He separated the light from the darkness. There will be some who scoff at you. There will be some who mock you. They will do everything they can to resist you. They will try to make you feel scared, embarrassed, ashamed, and the devil will use that to try and stop you, to silence you, to make you step down. In that very moment, remember Peter. Peter stood up. Peter spoke out with clarity and with conviction. He saw his opposition as an opportunity to clear up any confusion. And when he did, no kidding, it literally, literally, literally changed the world. What scoffer might be on the edge of becoming a saint, all because you and I had the courage to stand up and to speak out. With all of this in mind, it seems that the questions to us are these. Who has God brought together in our Jerusalem? in our city, in our neighborhood, in our lives, in our family, in our friendships, in our social circles, in our businesses? Who is waiting to hear you and me praise God and preach the gospel with clarity and with conviction? Who might need you to interpret for them the message and the meaning of Christ's life, death, and resurrection in ways that they can understand. And when the time comes, who is willing to stand and to speak the truth in love? My friends, this is our foundation. This is also our future. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. And this is why we gather together to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost for the 16th time. Here at Christ the Redeemer, Anglican Church, right here in Southwest Fort Worth, Texas, where God has planted you and me to praise him, and to preach the gospel from here to the very ends of the earth.